This episode of the American Farriers Journal podcast is brought to you by Penwood's Equine. The folks at Penwood's Equine are excited for you to hear about their new foot quality product, Essential Rescue. When you've exhausted all other biotin or foot quality products, this will be your go-to because it gets results in an incredibly short amount of time. Maybe you have multiple horses and everything you're doing seems to be working for them, except that one horse. No matter what you try, nothing seems to help that horse. We've all been there. Well, Essential Rescue is a product that you can add to whatever you're already feeding to achieve great hoof quality results. Through our own research and reports from our customers with their own horses, Essential Rescue can help deliver significant improvements in just one shoeing cycle. And for a limited time, Penwoods is offering free shipping on Essential Rescue when you buy from Penwoods.com. Welcome to the American Farriers Journal podcast. I'm Jeremy McGovern. Just like in every other facet of life, the horse world is being influenced by COVID-19. Through this, there's an effect on the farrier industry as well. That impact differs as greatly as the farrier industry does. Our audience surveys have shown that some farriers are seeing an impact of drawn out trimming or shoeing cycles in canceled horse shows. Other farriers haven't seen any change or are in fact seeing more business as clients are still training or spending more time with their horses. For those who are having a difficult time managing their businesses, we're offering this series to deliver practical business advice from an assortment of farriers at different points in their careers. Some of this will be related to current COVID measures, but in general, it's about better management of your practices. Even if you aren't affected by this pandemic, I'm sure you'll find good business advice within it. In this week's episode, we feature two farriers. First, Shane Westman is the farrier at the University of California, Davis, but before that, he had a solid practice based in the Pacific Northwest. Also in this episode is Alex Garcia, a farrier in Northern California. And I think Alex provides some great insight if you've just relocated your business to a new area. I want to welcome everybody tonight to the second American Farriers Journal Q&A, Business Practices. And tonight, uh, two for the price of one. Uh, we have Alex Garcia and Shane Westman joining, joining us, two farriers from California. Shane, why don't you tell us a little bit about your practice first? Uh, my current practice? Or? <laughs> yeah, well, let's, how you got there, too. Oh, okay. Uh, well, I started showing in uh, about 1992 uh, as a means to pay my way through college. Um, went to uh, a farrier school and immediately started uh, clientele after that and um, slowly built it up with no intentions on having it be a career, though it turned into a career. And that was all in uh, Northwest Washington State uh, with a wide variety of horses, the backbone being what I call weekend warriors, most people call backyard horses, um, fiercely loyal bunch, um, with in slant towards uh, therapeutic ferry. And uh, once I decided this was gonna be my career, one of my business plan was to be a, a therapeutic consultation fair later, which I found out really doesn't work in private practice outside of a, a clinic or hospital setting. Then uh, in 2016, uh, opportunity came up um, at UC Davis. Uh, the fair there was retiring out, 
and uh, I applied and got the job. And so I've been at uh, UC Davis as resident fair at the teaching hospital for the last uh, about four years. Great. Uh, tell us about your career and practice today, Alex. So I uh, got going in about 2007, um, attended my first clinic, and it took off from there, and I found a lot of interest in it. Um, was from the Southern California area originally, um, started, had a business down there for over 10 years. A lot of, uh, I'd say weekend warriors, backyard horses, um, kind of kept me going, worked a lot on, um, heavy, heavy horses, uh, draft breeds. Um, about four years ago, I made the jump, uh, to come up about a, um, hour east of Sacramento, um, up in the foothills. And, uh, my practice up here is a lot of backyards and then, um, gotten into a lot of, uh, working cow horses, um, rainers, um, cutting horses, et cetera. Uh, it's kind of when kind of been my, uh, I don't know, interest per se. Um, it's kept me busy. Um, but, uh, shoeing, st so starting out shoeing, it was, uh, uh, started with, uh, my farrier, uh, when I was, uh, uh, in high school and, uh, asked me the question of, um, well, you thought about doing this? And I, that wasn't my game plan at all. Um, I was going to enter into either law enforcement or the fire department and uh, found that uh, shoeing horses was a lot more fun. And um, I found so much more fulfillment and uh, um, a joy to work on horses. And it just kept uh, building and building and um, just uh, it's been good ever since. Great. So I think especially those who were with us last week, having a, a Hall of Famer, Tom Curl, join us, who, who started shoeing in 1972, the purpose of this series is to get different perspectives of people at different places in their careers, different types of practices. So we'll be mixing it up each week. So for a first question, uh, let's start with you, Alex. What, what advice do you have for establishing payment processes with clients, either new clients or trying to convince uh, established clients to change how they pay you? You know, you're going to work for a lot of different type of people in your industry. Um, I found giving people all the different options is the, the best possible. Uh, there's so many different apps out there. I mean, there's Cash App, Venmo, PayPal. Um, I mean, there's the sky's the limit on payment. Um, so it's kind of work, works for the customer. We, we want to work, you know, we work for them technically, but um, uh, you're going to have, uh, you know, still cash and check, which is just fine. I, I feel it's just fine. Um, but, uh, you know, the payment wise, it's just giving them the option. I think it's helpful. Um, also, um, you know, if you have customers that have problems paying or trouble paying, uh, one thing that I find is, uh, clients that are difficult, um, maybe setting up a shoeing cycle on the first of the month or the middle of the month or the end of the month. And so it kind of accommodates their checkbook, um, so that you're still getting the horse done, you're still getting paid, um, and it makes it easier for everybody. Yeah, I know it can be harder to do on some horses, and uh, you know that one client might not line up in your schedule, but uh, just giving them that, that option, it, it makes it smoother for everybody. So Shane, can you add to that one? That was uh, very similar. Uh, I always had demanded uh, a payment uh, due at time of service. I, I had um, a bit of business background before I started shooting horses in my um, late teens, early 20s. And um, to, in today's day and age, just like you said, there are so many options available. You, you don't need to be handed cash or checker anymore. Uh, it can be almost automatic and very safe. You don't need to be hanging on to credit card numbers. You can do it through a service where everybody's protected. Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah, but 
it uh, collecting uh, on invoices. Um, most businesses have an entire department for that. Uh, so, and, and it, and it costs quite a bit. Uh, you don't realize it until you have to sit down and spend a whole day tracking down, you know, a few hundred bucks. Yes. Yeah. So the, I, the mental capacity to, to keep track of those invoices, it can be difficult if there's, you know, I know there's programs to run those invoices, but it's still one more thing to keep track of. Exactly. And you need to have strict protocol, strict policies. If you do take uh, invoice payments, and once again, a lot of uh, owners are absent in, in barns. I, I get that. Once again, you can have an automatic uh, payment or chart, you know, invoicing, um, have a written policy um, in place. I think it's really important that the, the client understands and you stick to. Yeah. When, when do you give that written uh, the instructions on payment or policy? You know, nor, most of the time uh, in my practice, it's most of the time verbal. There is written policies that I do have. It's just, um, it's something I don't carry with me all the time. Um, it, at large barns or if I work for a corporation, I might submit that. Um, but on my, a small scale, it's, it's verbal most of the time. And, you know, you ask that, that starts off the, at, you know, either at the first appointment with that client or the, on that horse. What are your thoughts, Shane, on, on that? Uh, I had a, uh, when I did uh, invoice, which, which was rarely, um, there, there had to be a reason that I was uh, uh, allowing to um, basically take out a short-term loan without me getting an interest on it. Um, and so I, I, on my invoice sheet, I had it out. There's a, a small um, disclaimer, you know, after a certain amount of time, there's going to be a late penalty, um, which, which depends on the state you live in you know, could be required. You can't collect like a late fee without it being disclosed early. Um, but like Alex said, it's agreed upon before they owe me the money. And then th those policies are stated in my uh, letters I sent out yearly, which, which included updates to my business and my charges. Okay. Uh, for a next question, a rate sheet, having a published listing of your prices, uh, whether on your website or something you hand out, what's your thought on that, Shane? Um, I think uh, honesty and integrity and transparency is very important to small business owners. Um, and I always ran my business as though um, and treated my customers like I'd want to be treated as a customer. I talked to a lot of fairs, had a lot of different plans. They kind of had a floating rate, um, which, you know, if they're a nice barn, they charge more than if they're at a junkie barn. Uh, I tried to really stick to my policies. I definitely gave discounts to loyal customers and such. But I was pretty honest about that as well. Your customer for 20 years, you you know might get a little break, um, or if you had you know 4-H kid babysitting, I think it's good uh, financial responsibility. If that, um, and I try to help them out, um, but to have it down and clear and itemized, if you itemize for each thing you do, um, then there can never be a question because um, we know a horse community is pretty small, so it could uh, could be a bit of a CYA, cover your butt sort of thing. Uh, okay. To, to add to that, um, do you, do you think that, uh, you know, it might be, um, I, I would find it would be beneficial to use in, you know, like large barn setting, um, so that across the board, everybody knows what the rates are. Um, you know, so small scale accounts, um, I guess, uh, you could let them know if they, if they asked for it. Um, yeah. but yeah, being upfront and transparent, I agree with you hundred percent. I didn't publish it on my website. Um, early on I did and it kind of backfired. It's one more thing you have to update. Like I said, I sent out a yearly uh, information letter to my clients 
makes them feel more important, a little more personal interaction. And, and you can make, once again, your policy is clear, your, um, your, your price is clear. Now I had a little bit different pricing structure. I had kind of a one size fits all approach. Um, I was really uh, in touch with my numbers. I, I knew I broke down my numbers each year around tax time. So I knew what it was costing me to shoe horses and trim horses and replace shoes and figuring in my, you know, my vacation leave and my benefits and such. And I basically had a flat rate. And then that, that also opened it up for me. I charged a little bit more than the other guys, but when it came time to put on bar shoes, I didn't have to discuss with the owner whether or not we're going to put, you know, it's going to be extra 90 bucks for a bar shoes. It was already fixed in what they've been paying. So I had a little bit different pricing structure. So it was easier to translate those fees to clients rather than hitting them. You know, we all know pads are from a few bucks for a basic pad package with minimal packing to a size five foot that you're pouring into, you know, it's, uh, it's all over the road. So you can't There's just have a lot of variables there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, know your numbers. I think it's really important. So uh, let's get into a couple of topics that we discussed last week. I think you guys can give some different perspectives on this than, than maybe what Tom experiences with his uh, practice. Um, you know, for some farriers, there's a concern now because clients may be out of work, uh, dealing with other fallout issues related to the pandemic. What are your thoughts about giving price breaks or temporarily uh, lowering your price, giving a wider window of, of payment, some different ideas like that? You know, that, I think it would be a, a tough call. Um, it would uh, be hard to manage. If, you know, some, there's options out there of setting up payment plans, um, but then you got to keep track of that. Um, you know, maybe giving a discount, you know, 5%, you know, make them, um, you know, uh, you want to make them feel like they're appreciated or, and you're giving them a deal, but without, without breaking your bank. Um, it's something we could look at. Well, that's a tough one. Not one I fortunately had to think about working at the hospital and I, I get paid by the hour. So, um, and our clients, I don't, don't get a break, but it's definitely an interesting question. And these are unique times. I mean, and with uh, unique circumstances and we experienced in 2007, eight and nine, uh, that during the recession, that was the first time I, I thought it was pretty recession proof. And a lot of people got rid of their animals then type of clientele I had. Um, and I definitely saw pullback and, and I was giving breaks. And what I found is it, it, it hurt my bottom line. However, it, I think it made my loyal clients more loyal knowing that I worked with them and it, and it pays its way back. So you have to be, I think some flexibility is warranted in this situation. Uh, as a general rule, I didn't give like multiple horse discounts and such on a normal, you know, business setting. A question that came in, Shane, how did your clients handle moving to a flat rate? Uh, they, uh, it, a lot of resistance at first, as you can imagine, because uh, like I say my, my rate increase is more significant than normal. Um, of course, the people there get more complicated packages. And, but what you explain to the client that through the horse's career, um, and that's when I was moving more into the, the more sport horses, the higher end horses, when I'd given up trying to be a therapeutic farrier. Uh, and, and they were, they, they, know that the horse is getting injured at some point and they'll need something at some point and to not be hit with the extra few hundred bucks is really nice. And to kind of know, I actually got that idea from Steve Teachman. Uh, he had given a, um, a lecture once and we sat down at lunch and talked about some business topics and he, he basically said he had a flat rate, but it's, it is what it is. And he, and he, he said it could take the decision out of the client's hands, which is a huge one. Um, 
Yeah, Alex, I don't know. No, I, I don't have anything to add to that. Um, it, it's, it'd be something I'd be interested in looking at. The other side of uh, reducing your rates, rate increases. Uh, Shane, you mentioned you do this once a year in a letter. When do you think is the best time of the year to raise your rates? I, I normally like to use it uh, either um, after tax time or mid-year, but um, you know that 5%, I don't know what your rate increase is, but normally it's 5% a year, give or take. Um, that's usually notified because I sit down with a financial advisor usually after tax time every year and we go over a cost analysis of um, you know what my business is doing at the time and, and rate increases and what it's going to look like in the future. Um, so that's when I normally do it. Um, everybody's thinking about their money at that point in time. And I just, that's when I apply it. I think that's brilliant. I think that's when you know that your number's the best. Uh, I used to do mine around the holidays, you know, if there was kind of my slow season and I got to sit down, and write those things out. What I found is I had the most resistance because that's when everybody's paying for stuff. Everybody's kind of tightening the belt around that time. Around that time. And uh, so I moved it to June, July. Uh, once again, around tax time, you know, is, and I always wait till last minute to pay my taxes. Uh, though I prepped earlier, um, was a great way to get associated with what you're going to need to raise your rates. And then you introduce it in April or May for a June increase. And I, and I found that was a much smoother transition. Mm -hmm. okay. Uh, do you ever reduce a rate for a specific service? Uh, I, yeah. Uh, as bar shoes, I got to tell you, bar shoes is a great example. I use a lot of bar shoes. And um, it, with the inserts on the market today, it, it, I drop them in in five minutes. I don't even charge extra for them anymore, you know. Uh, I, I take that back. We do. But it's, it's <laughs> time and supplies rather than it, I'm charging less and less because it's taking me less and less time to do it. And, um, and technology is really helping me there. Uh, with the different, um, like I say, different ways you can weld these things in. Um, and that kind of goes with a lot of things. As technology evolves uh, and cost of supplies come down, I'll absolutely uh, rearrange my pricing structure to uh, reflect that. Yeah. Uh, examples that, I, that I've thought of that um, might be helpful, like hospital plates. I don't charge the same rate for a hospital plate, you know, put on first time. And, and then every time, you know, either – uh, wrapped or, or reapplied, I, I normally won't charge the same as when first applied because the time for me to, uh, you know, make it isn't there. So yeah, it's, it's a time factor as well. If there's something that, you know, just pops in and out and we replace quickly, it, it, um, it, uh, they do appreciate the little bit of cut costs at, at times. So why your margins stay consistent? True. True. Uh, here's a good question. Uh, we'll ask this of you first, Alex. What do you think is the biggest business mistake you made in your career? Uh, not charging enough off the bat. When I first got started and, and what I felt I was worth, I should have charged a lot more. And, um, you know, you think uh, starting out that, uh, you know, I, I need to take the lowest price and it's not necessary. Um, you know, it's, you start out knowing what you're doing and should be, be able to apply the appropriate amount of, of what you're worth um, is one mistake I made um, is, is not charging enough. Um, Maybe also um, not setting up a structure of business of how I want things to be in the future and just running with what's happening at the moment, if that makes sense. Um, but uh, that was probably a couple that I would say that uh, I could have done better. What about you, Shane? But starting in the early 90s, I had thought I was being really smart opening a 
uh, retirement account and IRA early. And then that market crash hit and I, and I soured. And so the biggest mistake I did is not putting money into retirement early in my career when I was young and when the market was down, just like right now to consent, continue to put in, I skipped a bunch of years and it could have, it could have grown. I could be comfortably retired right now. <laughs> so save early, save often. I did not do that. And I'm paying for it now. Luckily I'm a pretty good planner, but uh, I could be so much better off. Uh, let's uh, get into this. This is always a good question. What are your thoughts on specializing within a, a specific discipline or two versus having a, a well-rounded practice with, with a lot of different types of clients? Alex, why don't you take that first? Um, I, I, I have had the opportunity to work on a lot of different types of horses and, and different disciplines. Um, I think it makes you well-rounded working on different breeds and seeing different types of feet. Um, you got a lot of other cha different challenges with different breeds. And I think with, you know, working with, for different clients in different, um, different areas really opens your eyes to, um, you know, how a hoof really works, but it works different in a lot of different breeds. Um, is, is a comment I have, Shane. Uh, I, you, you've hit something I'm very passionate about. Uh, I think it's very important to be you know, good at everything, but be really great at one thing or two things. Uh, you had mentioned, Alex, Western horses, what you're doing right now. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think the key to specialization is realizing others have different specialties and don't be afraid to refer to other farriers. Uh, for example, Frisians, or have a bunch of people on speed dial for when you're not uh, well-versed in it. I have uh, a guy that I call, we, I, I now do a lot of Frisians. I never did one before. I, I avoided them. And I, I think that's what's missing in our industry is the, the comfort level to refer or ask for help um, in a discipline that may not be your own specialty. But once again, you should ask for those same referrals. Um, if, if you're a hunter jumper guy, uh, and you, and you, <clears throat> you know, don't be afraid to say, hey, I know what I'm doing here. Uh, the guy like me, I well, know they come into me lame. I, once they're going back to work, I, I shoot to get them sound. I don't shoot them to work. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. I, to add to that, Shane, I, I find it helpful when you work on all, uh, all different types of breeds and types and disciplines you know, me working in, you know, a lot of the Western pleasure barns or cow horse barns that, you know, sure enough, there'll be a thoroughbred in the barn and, you know, thin walled and being able to, oh, okay, thin wall, thoroughbred foot. Well, I, I've, you know, worked on this before and I could deal with the thoroughbred foot, but then go right back to work on another quarter horse foot. It's so having well-rounded is helpful because, you know, you never know what's going to pop up in any barn you're at. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you guys feel the same way about the size of the barns you work in? Like, you know, having a sampling of a few large barns or, or down to a, maybe a few clients where it's a single horse. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, Alex? You know, you, you need to have some balance. Um, uh, Shane said earlier uh, tonight that the uh, um, backyard horses are your bread and butter. And so having a, a good handful of backyard horses and backyard horses in in different areas, it's helpful to kind of spread, spread that out. Um, big barns, um, the, they're nice and the money's good, but they're, they can be very short term at times. And so really, um, not limiting yourself just to do large barns, but really be open to have a mix of, of both. So if you lost a big barn, 
um, that you're not going to be hurt for money and you still have a handful of, let's say, you know, bread and butter backyard clients that'll help support you um, is I think really helpful. I absolutely agree uh, that uh, big barns are great. And uh, when you think along in terms of, uh, you know, income produced and expenses, you know, parking your rig at one stop all day is, is great for the pocketbook um, uh, until they change a barn manager and the new barn manager has his own guy. You may not have done anything wrong or uh, I never liked barn politics. I never liked, you know, uh, barn gossip. And the best of the barns I did work in my own path, I kind of just quietly snuck in and uh, hid in the corner. I, I, uh, I definitely preferred those three and four horse stops. But uh, the trainers I really enjoyed working with and that I knew protected me and saw my value, and those are the barns I welcomed. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, just, just like Alex said, I think having a well-rounded practice really balances things out for you. Right. So Shane, your practice now, you, you don't do a lot of driving, uh, but Alex, what are your thoughts on the amount of area you should cover? You know, that's, it's case by case because you can cover a good hour on flat ground, no problem. But if you live in a, a hilly country or a mountain area, you know, covering that hour distance might be a lot harder. Um, it's really, it's case by case and, and what your, you know, finances are able to do because you know, you have added gas costs and added, you know, uh, maintenance costs. Um, there's really not a number per se of what you work in. It's, it's really, it's up to the, uh, the farrier that, you know, runs his practice because he might be able to afford to live in one area, but have to drive, you know, two hours to another area. It's really case by case and in the area that you live. That's a tough call. Um, I, I probably go an hour each direction, but it's an easy hour. Um, it, it goes by quick. Um, and also to remaining, uh, within the area that I can get to, um, you know, problem horses or, um, vet calls or, you know, pulled shoes. Um, you can get it to it in a quick amount of time is, is also helpful. I think there was a, a story we did back in November, Danvers child, uh, farrier in Indiana, uh, changed his, you know, he had the typical circle, but you know, it's relative to where he lives with interstate 65 and he would only go now to maybe 10 miles on each side, some mm-hmm. short distance versus that circle. And what he was finding was he was losing clients because those guys far out on that edge of the circle, he would get to it tomorrow, but tomorrow never came. And now by doing that, he can hit them all on the way back. So yeah, yeah it's certainly relative to, to anyone's practice. I think this ties in very well with your specialization question as well. Uh, the more you want to specialize, and the more you want to narrow your focus, the more you're going to have to be willing to travel. What about your pricing changes for resets? Same price or do you change it at all? Um, I normally start with, with the same price. Um, it's kind of that uh, it's an unsung rule that I just charge the same and, and most customers don't mind. Um, it's, it's kind of an added tip in our pocket, like I say, um, which goes into a little quick topic of, you know, that, that money saved on a reset could be money put into savings, um, you know, or, or added into some, you know, paying, paying something off or et cetera. Um, I, I charge the same, um, on occasion we talked about, um, you know, giving a discount, if you reset a shoe, well, you're able to, you know, give them a little bit of a break. And I think they appreciated it. It's kind of that give and take, you know, those loyal customers Shane was talking about and, uh, giving them the, uh, little bit of a break is, is, is helpful. 
What process do you guys have for vetting clients? You know, a little different. I got to take everything they send me now. Yeah. <laughs> I, I never did draft horses till I came. I did more draft horses in the last week than I did in 25 years before I came. Um, but no, uh, anytime, uh, referrals were very, very big for me, uh, whether it was trainers or veterinarians or owners I trusted, those are the clients I took first. Uh, if a new client cold called me, there was, I asked some pretty specific questions along the way about why they're searching for a new farrier. How do they get, how do they call me? Um, if they value, they heard that I did great work or they heard that I really was knowledgeable in a subject, I was more apt to go with them than, well, you, you got tools, right? I just didn't want to be a set of hands and tools. I want to be known for my skill and knowledge. No, I can, I, I agree with that a hundred percent. You know, just, uh, you know, if a client calls, I usually ask where they refer, you know, where you got my number and it usually starts from there on if they got it from a reliable source <laughs> or a, or a trusted client or a vet, um, you know, and then ask them, you know, usually, you know, I ask them what type of horses do you have? Um, you know, what kind of riding do you do? And it starts into there, the conversation of you can tell just from a phone call if, uh, you know, they're, for the most part, you can tell if, if they're going to be a quality client or a customer that, you know, should be applied some effort to. Alex, did you ever have an uh, answer from a client that makes you run the other way? Yes. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think of some at the moment. Um, you know, usually if they mispronounce a, a word, the word farrier, it, um, if they say farrier wrong or, uh, you know, uh, uh, my horse needs shod, but, um, you know, the horse is a, needs a trim or, you know, they just, they, I, I think a lot of it's terminology that you just, you kind of roll your eyes thinking, oh, this is going to be a fun one, or maybe I should just forward this off to somebody else. Um, that's kind of, uh, question wise, I, I can't think of some at the moment, but that's usually where it, where it starts is when, you know, I want a client that, you know, knows, knows the horses for the most part, but knows, you know, what my job is and what my job entails. How much time do you spend per week on business related work, your billing, your payment follow-ups and your bookkeeping? Now, Shane, that, that again, that's probably different. I'm sure the, the hospital handles a lot of the business side of things for you now, but when you were managing your own practice, how would that work? Uh, I spent, a, uh, about probably, um, half hour a morning, uh, returning phone calls, making sure all my, uh, receipts were in order, uh, uh, do, you know, running my aging reports, to make sure I didn't have anybody owed me any money. Um, and then on Mondays I'd spend probably two hours, uh, doing the week's financials and my bank deposits. And once again, make sure all the money is where it needed to be. So half hour a morning and a couple, and a couple hours on Monday and, a, and weekends off. It, it might be a little less for me. Um, a little uh, trick uh, that a farrier told me a long time ago was uh, you spend two minutes at lunch and two minutes at the end of the day to return calls. And uh, if there's no calls to return, you, you spend those two minutes calling a customer that has a horse with a problem and ask how that horse is. And that just that little bit of service goes a long way of just asking, you know, how Fluffy's doing. Um, so taking just two minutes out of your day. So, um, and I would say my, my evenings, um, maybe I spend 10 minutes sitting in the truck before I go in the house to, to wrap up my books, um, figure out my schedule, um, you know, do any check deposits, all my, you know, banking stuff I usually do once a week, um, Mondays or Fridays normally is, is how, where I do the, the, uh, money aspect of things. But, uh, so all in all, you know, 
let's say, you know, an hour a week is spent doing business paperwork, you know, give or take, it depends on, it depends on the week and how busy I am and uh, et cetera. I think that's, that's a really great topic is remembering this is a, a service industry and those little things do go a long way for clients. Uh, what other tips do you have in that arena, Alex? Um, you know, I always found clients that, um, you know, with the service industry that, that are nervous or scared of something or they, or, um, they, they don't know about a problem. Um, it's most of the time because they aren't educated about it. So whatever fear they have, if you educate yourself on that fear, which they're, they're a lot can be the same, um, or a lot of clients have the same fear, um, educating yourself on the, and knowledging of, about that fear and, and kind of gives them peace of mind of, okay, I know I might, I know my horse is taken care of, um, is a helpful t tool I use of, you know, uh, just letting the client know what's going on. Oh yeah. Uh, I gotta tell you, technology, use technology. It makes communication so much easier. You can stop and think about things. I, I, I really hate using a telephone. I actually had in my outgoing message. If you really want to get, get back to you, text me. <laughs> um, so, and you can organize your thought and you have a record of your conversation, which can really help um, in a dispute. Um, and much along the lines of what Alex said, the customer really wants to be part of the process. You're the expert. If they're asking a lot of questions, you might feel like they're questioning you, but they really just want to understand uh, that the modern horse owner really wants to be informed. And there's so much out there that if you're not informing them, they're going to be informed somewhere else and you may not want that. So um, like I say, with technology, it makes it really easy to communicate, educate them, just like Alex said, actually to, to what your plan is, what your goals are for them, and involve them in the process. Make them feel important in the process. And we absolutely do that at the hospital too. Uh, they're, they're standing right there with us as we're discussing the case. And, and more often, and of course, they all get, the hospital sends out uh, a lot of, um, you know, how these guys do uh, sort of surveys. And that's consistently what we see is they, they love being part of the process. How, how do you set up those boundaries though? Because uh, technology makes us much more accessible, email or text, for example. Uh, but then that client wants to know a little bit more at nine o'clock at night and doesn't want to wait till the morning. How do you, how do you set up those boundaries, Shane? Uh, that was in my letter as well, that yearly letter, what my office hours are. Uh, my office hours, you know, were uh, eight to seven. My business hours were nine to six. So uh, if they want to contact me, they had the, that window of the eight to seven. Outside of that, I'm not returning. And weekend, I don't return calls except for emergencies. I mean, we are self-employed, um, but I, I was pretty strict um, on that. How, how do you handle those boundaries, Alex? You know, I think off the bat, um, what I what I do is, you know, if, if I get do get a phone call or text at nine o'clock at night, it, it's not going to get returned until you know eight o'clock the next morning. Um, that's usually and and over time, clients get to know that they're not going to get an answer from me um, right away um, if it's you know past a certain time. Um, you know, emergency cases is one thing, but, uh, on a, you know, random questions or, you know, s small issues, um, they, they've kind of learned, I think over the years of just, you know, oh, he'll get back to me in the morning. Um, so that's kind of how I've set it up. I, I haven't had a lot of problems with that. Um, just for the fact of, I just ignore the call until the morning. Um, and I screen a lot of calls, which is helpful with technology, um, to, to screen calls. 
but for the most part, I, I, they've learned that I, I won't get back to them till daylight hours. You have to train them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I knew this question would come up for you, Shane, working with vets. Uh, what advice do you have for improving your relationship with vets? Uh, that's a great question. Um, learn how to speak vet. Um, ask them, demand their respect, earn their respect. Uh, and I think that's really important. Uh, be knowledgeable in your field uh, and don't, and I have, this, I have this issue all the time, still to this day, I over talk. Sometimes just ask a question and shut up. You don't need to show your knowledge. <laughs> and, and my mouth moves too much. And um, so it, it, the vet wants to work with the fair generally. And the students we're pumping out are, are really, they, they have some really great questions. Uh, we did a Zoom meeting with a bunch of students today, and um, it was all in podiatry, and it was very engaging. So there is an appreciation for what the fair can offer. Uh, so it's just like working with the owner. You, you have to communicate with the veterinarian. Don't make demand. Yeah. Shane, I, I want to add to that, uh, that uh, you know, I'm new to an area, so uh, vets around here don't know me and, and know my, my history or what I'm capable of. Um, I, I did make the mistake of, yeah, I, I get talking too much and you want to let the vet know how much you know, but a lot of times it goes back into, I'll quietly sit there and listen and uh, throwing in a couple of vet terms um, to them, you know, about the process. They'll, they'll really turn their head and uh, pay attention to, oh, this guy, you know, might know what he's talking about. Um, not the saying just the words can do it because the work, the work will show. But um, being able to convert, uh, converse with the vet is, is helpful. And like I said, in an area that I'm new in, um, the vets don't know me. And so I'm just trying to establish myself. And, and it's little by little of just letting them know that, uh, hey, you know, I, I work hard at trying to understand your terminology. Um, so let's, you know, let's work together. Exactly. And, and terminology is so important. And instead of saying the inside or the outside, it doesn't happen overnight. You, you have to train yourself to speak in medial and lateral and dorsal and palmar and proximal distal, but it's not that hard once you learn to do it. And they respect that because that's how they speak. Um, and it's, um, it, it really helps. Okay. Here's a good question from Tim Shannon, who helped us uh, uh, at the summit a few years ago with a, uh, a great presentation with uh, veterinarian Bob Grissel on this very topic. Uh, Tim ask, how do you handle a difference of opinion with a veterinarian? This is important because this, and it comes up quite often. We all know that now most vets don't have a ton of training in podiatry. Uh, even the ones that do just like farriers have some very strong opinions on what they believe. Um, so if you have a package, you need to be prepared to defend it. And the more actual evidence you have to back it up, a study that's been done on that particular package or why you just can't say, I don't like wedge pads. You need to have some explanation as to why. It's not because my mentor didn't like it. It needs to be that this has been shown to, you know, uh, add, add stress to the, um, you know, pulmonary area of the foot. But Greg, have some proof. I think education is key. Um, of yeah. Just being educated on, on knowing what this shoe will do and knowing the, the cause and effect of it. I, I see that a lot with, um, shoes that vets want applied and um, being able to talk the talk and walk through them of this is what's going to happen to the foot. This is, you know, my history with this, um, you know, cases, um, you know, bring up studies, um, being able to just like I said, understand the foot and what's going to happen with what's applied 
either it's wrong or indifferent. Um, you know, just, uh, trying to find that common ground. Um, it's frustrating at times. I know that a lot of them, a lot of farriers will, um, it, it, it puts the har a horse uh, in harm's way, but you know, you might have to do what the vet applies, but then they might start seeing, okay, that's not working. But, and then talk to the vet saying, look, this is what I, f I feel will, really will work and applying that if it works or doesn't, but just, you know, we each have an, an opportunity to put in our, our option or our opinion um, is helpful. It's, it's so true and you make a very good point. And if you're demanding they be flexible, you're gonna to need to be a little flexible as well. Uh, you, if, if they're proving their point, maybe you need to bend a little bit in your ideas as well. Okay. Uh, what advice do you have uh, if you do move to an area and trying to find clients trying to build your books? Alex, can you take that first? Yeah, you know, so uh, I, I started down in, like I said, um, Southern California thinking that I was going to live there my whole life, um, and that's where I was going to stay. Um, you know, life changed and things come up. Uh, moving to the new area, you know, I really, really, I got lucky um, by building a rapport with other farriers was, I think, one of the most important things that I did in, in moving to new areas. Um, you know, uh, getting to meet, you know, Shane, getting to meet um, other farriers up up in this, you know, in, in the area that could help build your business because they know you and, and know what you're capable of. Um, you know, I, I was able to fall into a, uh, uh, a farrier that was retiring and, and the farrier knew me and, and knew where I came from. And so, you know, all of a sudden just getting 30 head of, you know, horses immediately just to keep me afloat was, was really helpful. Um, so I think, you know, uh, you know, working together as farriers, you know, we all bend over for a living. So if we can all build a rapport between one another, because you never know when one guy's going to have to move to your area or away from your area. I found that, uh, that's probably most beneficial, um, is, is other guys in the industry. Absolutely agree. Network, 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 no farriers. Um, you know, hang out the local supply house, talk to farriers, go to clinics. That's where I met Alex. And, um, then you'll, you'll start to build your business organically. Um, cause any good fair in the area is already booked overbooked and they'll, they'll start sending business your way and then provide great customer service because word travels fast. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, for a final question, and, and this is tied to something that really jumped out at me that you wrote recently on Facebook, Shane. Um, and it, I, think one of the things we're learning in a difficult time that, that some farriers may be going through now is that we need better planning. And uh, there's a, a thought as a, an independent business person that you don't have benefits, that that's people in the corporate world. Shane, right. you've got a completely different theory about this. Oh, I, I got to tell you, and I, what I wrote down is one of my biggest pet peeves, and I'd heard it that morning, is it, oh, in this, in this uh, time, it's really nice that you have some benefits now, not like when you're self-employed. I was like, when I was self-employed, my business took care of all my needs. Well, people don't understand that outside the corporate world that there could be benefits. And, I, and it, it's my, my business, just Westman Ferry Service, absolutely provided me health care, dental care, vision care, retirement plan, vacation time, sick leave. It was all figured in to my uh, pricing structure. And, um, and the point I made, uh, another point I made in that same post was it was actually more flexible when you're self-employed. I'm stuck to about two choices now. Uh, uh, size has its 
benefits of the, like the UC system is so massive that they have some really good benefits. Um, but when you're self-employed, the world is your oyster. You can shop nationally for, um, let's say, a retirement account, you know, who offers the best, best ways to go with the most choices. Right now, I get one. Alex, how, how have you set up your practice for, for long-term protection? You know, uh, long-term protection for me is, uh, you know, you got to you know, start with some, you're, you're here and now, uh, you got to um, kind of protect yourself for the, uh, the temporary. And then, and then once that's protected, you look for the long-term. Um, you know, I, I've started with uh, covering myself from about three to six months of just, if I were ever hurt on top of um, disability insurance, but um, covering myself financially, that my bills can be paid for, from, for about three to six months. Um, so, and that's comfortable. So during this time, you know, you might need to touch it if, if, if barns are keeping you out or et cetera. Um, but long-term, you know, um, retirement, I, Shane and I could talk for, for hours on, on setting up retirement um, that, you know, a lot of farriers out there think, oh, you know, I'll never be able to retire. It, it's definitely possible. It's just, you have to know the numbers and, and apply it accordingly. Um, a lot of, you know, basic math to figure out what your costs need to be. Um, but you know, like I said, protecting myself, it, it starts with just, you know, one penny at a time, um, that, you know, down the road when you aren't able to shoe horses or, you know, um, something, you know, might come up that you can be protected financially, at least, um, um, a lot of guys, you know, ha have a secondary, um, kind of their secondary job choice, um, kind of keep that, you know, too. uh, that, that door open is always, you know, what can I do if I wasn't shooing horses? That's, that's something we all need to think about because you know, that, that last horse might be tomorrow. We just never know. Um, so if we can get ourselves up set up financially and then with, with a, with a secondary game plan, I think is beneficial. Okay. Uh, I lied. We'll do one more question. I, I like this one. Uh, looking, uh, Ferry wants to know what advice do you have to get to a better class of clients in uh, your own local area? You know, I, I'd find it um, goes back to hanging out with farriers in that area. Get, get, you know, jump in their truck, um, find farriers that are working on horses you want to work on and uh, you know, say you know, either, you know, apply yourself and jump in their truck, be open to, to their style of shoeing because that might be what that um, you know, type of client wants. Um, that I, I, I'd start there by, by farriers that are working in that industry, um, get educated in, in that industry of whatever, you know, type of horses you want to work on, um, know the terminology, um, you know, from English to Western to, um, gated, you know, the gated, uh, community to the draft community, know, know the ins and outs of it. Um, I think it's helpful. It, it might, it might sound like a pretty basic answer, but just like you said, to go sweep the floors for someone. You know, you're not offering your expertise, you're, you're gaining your expertise and you will gain their trust. And then, um, and you'll learn a lot along the way. And then once again, you'll kind of get those clients rolling your way. Uh, also trainers, really important. Just like you're trying to develop a relationship with veterinarians, a cup of coffee goes a long way with a trainer. Uh, and if you're in their good graces, uh, you know, some really great trainers don't, you're not asking for their clientele. You, you, once again, you want them to think of you when they're looking for I'd like to thank both Shane and Alex for joining me tonight. Uh, next week, we'll do this again, Thursday night, 8 Central. And uh, the question of retirement will be a good one to, uh, to approach. We'll have David Barron joining us. And David 
is a, uh, a financial advisor based in uh, the state of Washington, but he's a former farrier. So unlike someone who tries to make guesses about what you do for a living, he actually lived it. He was a CJF farrier until uh, injury laid him up and forced him into retirement. But now he's uh, back and uh, helping farriers with business advice. So uh, again, thank you everyone for joining us. Thank you, Shane and Alex, and uh, everybody, stay healthy, stay safe, and hope to see you here next week.